Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone executive editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to hear from Bruce Springsteen about his new book, his life, and much more. We're also going to talk about new music from Solange and the Drive-By Truckers. But first... Well, it's And that was a little bit of Cranes in the Sky from the new album from Solange Knowles, A Seat at the Table. I'm here with John Dolan, Record Reviews Editor. What's up, John? Hey, Nathan. Hey. So Solange, she's Beyonce's cool younger sister. Tell us about her path up to this point for people who don't know. Yeah, well, you know, uh, she, yes, exactly, was uh, is Beyonce's sister and, um, you know, when you're Beyonce's sister, I feel like that can lead to a certain sort of sense of maybe a little bit of issues with artistic identity. And she has often kind of been someone who has kind of more taken the artier Brooklyn-y kind of route in her in her music. This is her first album in five years. Her last one was an EP called True, which kind of combined new wave and dance pop and things like that. She's covered a Dirty Projector song in the past. But on this album, you really feel like her putting the time in to kind of find a real artistic voice that's truly her own and kind of re- relates to her experience, uh, her cultural experience, her historical experience. It's It feels like this is kind of the first real like Solange record, like a coming out record. Although I will say like, like the indie rock side of her, mm-hmm. the hipster side of her has been kind of cool, and it's worked out for Beyonce, too. It's yeah. like like she, uh, I think, has like definitely influenced Beyonce's taste and been kind of Beyonce's entree in the different types of music. Oh, yeah. No, I wasn't trying to imply that they have some kind of negative relationship at all. It's very kind of symbiotic. But I think in this one, you I don't see think her, you were. But I, I was sorry, just, well, yeah. I was don't just, don't want to go down that road. Yeah. I'm not trying to go down that road. <laughs> Uh, is you know actually this record is not is a nice kind of like echo of Lemonade in a lot of ways. I mean it's basically about black consciousness and black history and trying to come to terms with you know dreams of aspiration and dreams of hope and the systematic oppression that's kind of obviously all around now and is especially prevalent and something we've been talking about in the news and in politics throughout the year. And so it's got the album ends up kind of having an election year type sort of theme to that's it. That's definitely in the background. Yeah, you definitely feel like Black Lives Matter in the background. There's that, a great yeah. moment actually on the record. There's there's the song. Are great. It's got a laid back, elegant, conversational quality. It kind of might remind you of 70s RB, maybe the 70s Diana Ross or CB Wonders song. Definitely a live record. The whole record definitely yes. has a consistent. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a decently long record and you want to sit with it. But there's, a, there's some interludes, and one of them is her mom talking about, you know, when I want to celebrate blackness, it's not anti white. And there's kind of, and, you know, sort of these kind of themes, like kind of taking on the white lives matter idea and doing it in ways that are, you know, self exploration is a big part of it, but also just kind of being conversational and kind of like sitting, it's, the, the, the title is a seat at the table. It's let's get together and talk about these things. And it's the music f- flows so smoothly and her performance and her singing is so elegant, it, it really kind of invites you in and it does feel that kind of warmth is there. What are some of the other uh, tracks that you're One track taking? is that there's a tribute to Junie Morrison, who is in, a musician in Parliament Funkadelic, is, is, is really great. The song Don't Touch My Hair, which is just basically kind of like standards of beauty is are addressed and things like that's really great. You know this my shit first song is called Rise, and the second song is called Weary, and that kind of works out the dichotomy she's going to work out throughout the record. Right. There's another record you wanted to talk about today, which kind of comes at Black Lives Matter from a totally different direction, the new record from the Drive-By Truckers. Yeah, I think these records are pretty related, especially since, I guess, the election kind of sucks everything into it. But, like, they're they're similar. Drive-By Truckers are a southern indie rock band. They've been around for almost 20 years now. 
the front man's Patterson Hood, co-leader is Mike Cooley, and they've often talked about it, the, what they've called the Southern thing, sort of the experience of the white working class and white alienation and white resentment or working class resentment and alienation and sort of the way these things kind of play themselves out in American history and politics. Like so, Patterson Hood, these guys, are, they're liberals, you know. The, yeah, Patterson Hood music for like sensitive good old boys. It absolutely yeah. is. I mean, he just, he's, he grew up in Alabama. They were stationed in Athens, Georgia for a long time. He moved to Portland recently, and it has that sense of kind of looking back at your past through a little bit of distance and a little bit of uh, reflection. You know, the NRA comes up, immigration comes up. There's uh, one really powerful song about the Oregon school yeah, shooting. Yeah, there's, right. there's two really great, there's a song, What It Means is the kind of his reflection on trying to talk about Black Lives Matter and, and, and these killings to maybe to have a dialogue with someone that's from his hometown who might basically not agree that race even plays a role in these things. There's just two sides calling names out of anger, out of fear. And if you say it wasn't racial when they shot him in his tracks, well, I guess that means that you ain't black. And the songs are open up for dialogue. The song you're talking about, it's called Guns of Umqua. It's a, about a mass shooting in, in Oregon that took place. And it looks from the perspective of, of someone who, I think it's based on a real person, it's factual, uh, who survived the shooting. And he actually had been in Iraq, been in Iraq, he's a soldier, been in Iraq, been in Afghanistan. The shooting was at a community college. And he's back now thinking, you know, I stared down hell over there. I come here and get something even worse. I made it back from hills It's a pretty song. It's soft. And he's taking this kind of nature walk with his buddies, and he talks about, boy, you know, Lewis and Clark came here. This is this beautiful land, and all this possibility in America, you know, we can have, you know, participate in this kind of great experience, but here I come to, you know, face down hell. And it's, the, the way he rent, it's so poetic. It's, like, unmistakably pretty. And beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and it re- kind of renders this tragedy in ways that I think could make anyone, no matter what side of this issue, you know, Second Amendment, NRA stuff you're on, sit and kind of have a good cry. All right, well, that's the new record from the Drive-By Truckers and the new Solange record. Two records very much for this year. Yes, listen to them back to back. maybe many years. Yeah, Who knows? Right. That's right. <laughs> but um, John Dolan, thanks for coming on. Thank you. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Badlands by Bruce Springsteen. I'm here with Brian Hyatt, who just interviewed Bruce Springsteen for the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. What's up, Brian? What's up? It's hard to, like, come out of a Badlands intro without sounding like, and it's Rocktober, right? I mean, it's really... <laughs> That's right. right. We've got a rock block coming next. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just get out of the way and play some <laughs> Springsteen. But we can't. This is the podcast we're supposed to talk about Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, no, but no music here. We just talk about this it. This is a very special... Actually, this is a very special episode, though, because we actually have some of your interview tape from uh, your, your cover story interview with Bruce. Uh, yeah, so we, I went to uh, Colts Neck, New Jersey, and we sat around and talked for quite a while about... Uh, all sorts of things, mostly coming back to the subject of Born to Run, his new best-selling uh, memoir. So for people who don't know, what can you uh, talk about Born to Run a little bit uh, and what's in this book? And Yeah. I know it, it's a big topic. It's yeah, a big, it's a big topic. As, yeah. as you may have heard, uh, Bruce Springsteen wrote a book, and uh, it's he 
wrote it himself, which is unusual, relatively unusual in the world of uh, rock star memoirs. And it's a beautiful book, I think, really well written, really emotional, and you really feel his voice. You really feel, you know, as, as people have said, he lapses into capital letters here and there to sort of recreate the sensation of being shouted at by Bruce Springsteen at a concert, you know. Um, but but I, I found it really moving and revealing and honest, and it was interesting to talk to someone who had just revealed so much in a 500-page book because, you know, what's left <laughs> to talk about. But, you know, what it is is you just kind of – you know, you try to expand on some things. You try to hit some new angles. You just kind of get a sense of what it was like. Let me just say, I mean, one thing I liked about your interview is that you were coming at it from the point of view of a serious Bruce fan, and you got him to kind of expand on some of the stuff. Like, I think a lot of people, you know, in the book he talks about his depression, and but you were able to ask about kind of how did that play out in specific tours. As someone who's been like, what, you know, going to Bruce shows for a long time and has been yeah. following his career for a long time. I think, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, with, with Bruce Springsteen, I think he's accustomed, I realize, to talking to people who know everything about him. Like, right. that's, he's more used to that than the opposite. So, right. When you're Bruce uh, Springsteen, you attract that. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. yes. Yeah. You know, it's just more just, you know, just so many people. Uh, dude has, has a share of fans. But, it, you know, it, it was definitely interesting. And I think it was pretty conversational, which I liked and maybe, maybe hopefully enjoyed. Um, so let's hear it a little yeah. bit. Here we go. The joy and the conviction and the triumph of Badlands, or you know, is you feel even on a subconscious level how hard one it is over the other side, over the abyss. Well, that that was part of making a good song. You know, you've got to have friction and tension and something to push up against. Every writer needs that. Uh, I think it was Tom Stoppard who once said he envied Vaclav Havel. (laughs) Because you're right. Talk about something to push up against. Yeah, Yeah, right. You know? Uh, So you need something to push up against. And so I was consequential. If the triumphant part of the song was going to feel real and not just hacked out, I had to have something I was pushing up against to... You know, to uh, so I just understood that balance, and it, perhaps because it comes out of gospel music, where uh, it was just a music of transcendence. I wanted my music to be a music of transcendence, uh, very similar. I mean, we have gospel and blues always mixed together. The blues are the chorus. You know, the blues are the verse. Gospel is the chorus. And that's how my songs are built. And at the same time, I believe in the love that you gave me. I believe in the hope that you saved me. It's, it, it is like someone who the day before might not have believed. <laughs> yeah, know? or maybe barely believing right now. You know? <laughs> Interestingly, I mean, one of the only concerts that you describe in detail in the book is the Hammersmith concert. Mm-hmm. And I wondered whether it was because... The reason you were able to just to get so deep into it was because of that uncharacteristic self-consciousness you felt. Something so, heavy to push up against. Yeah, well, but also that there was some that that maybe you remember it more clearly because usually you're you're in a state of where you're not self-conscious like yeah, that. Yeah, that was a it was a a nightmare of a mind fuck, you know. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it's it always it remained with me for a long time. 
And do, and is it is it true to a certain extent that some other concerts are more of a blur in, in your in your mind because of the the, the the nowness of your experience of them? Or, or now, I think you go on stage with a lot of confidence because you've had so many years behind you, uh, and. I tend to try to move to that place every night. Some nights it's easier than other nights, but I pretty much always get there to that moment where suddenly it's just you and the audience. Everything else is kind of falling away, time, space, and you're just in this in this very kind of lovely place. Uh, you're really you're really communicating. But it's it's always something you have to do on a nightly basis, and you, and even after all the years, you still have to, you know, as Peter Wolf said, and I say in the book, it's the weirdest thing you can do on stage. Think about what you're doing. Right. Coming out of the '80s, one of the things you talk about is, is that the long sh- this idea, and you talk about it in the book, but that the long shows were some form of. There was a little bit of self-punishment in it. There's a little bit of like you weren't going to be pleased with yourself until you were like you know could barely walk at the end. And you know you're, you're healthier now. You're not gonna do that anymore. But, but well, I was a good Catholic boy, so yeah. there was an element of the purification ritual. But have you come around to where now you're doing it from a healthier? Because you're doing the same thing, but maybe not for the same reasons. I'm <laughs> not sure so. myself. <laughs> you know why? Why does a man play four hours at night? I'm, not, I'm still not exactly sure. You know. Uh, um, and I would have to say it still harkens back to some of those original impulses and uh, the fact that uh, I need to go all the way all the time. You also linked it, uh, and I love this passage, to, to, your, to your mom's uh, family. I, I think deliberately you, you described a dinner at your sort of mom's family in terms that basically sounded like a Bruce Springsteen concert, like yeah, they'll stuff you into your own stuff. <laughs> hysterical. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the level of energy would often be a level of hysteria that perhaps is not un, uncommon in Italian, <laughs> <laughs> in Italian families, and mine was certainly no different, you know. People were shouting, yelling, and but also there was a tremendous amount of joy and just this unusual excitement about life over nothing except living itself mm. you know? yeah you know send to be glad you're alive basically yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean you also said I mean you, you described that dream much later where you say to your dad like that that guy on stage that's how I, that's yeah. how I see you I, yeah. I'm, I sort of understand that and then I, I sort of would love you to un- unpack that a, li- a little more well I did an unusual thing, you know. They say that those you can't get close to, you emulate. So I was basically a bum who never worked, you know, <laughs> outside, of scra- outside of scratching on my guitar. Uh, but when I went to work, I think, you know, like I said, I put on the clothes of my father and I slipped into his role and, in a lot of ways. Uh, in order to be close, in order to understand, in order to sort through and figure out. Uh, I didn't realize this till much later, you know, but um, that seemed to be 
which is not, that's not psychologically unusual given the nature of our relationship, but it seemed to be just the place where I went. So that dream was just, I was trying to explain to my dad, like, look, this is, this is where all this took us. This is where what you gave to me took me, and it's how I see you, you know, in my heart of hearts, you know. The, it's fascinating that you, um, you chose to, as you said, universalize your dad's story yeah. into, a, into something that wasn't, the, the reality, of course, is, as you wrote, it's just much messier, oh, much, yes. yeah, and, it, and it's, it's maybe too messy for a rock and roll song, I don't know, you know what Perhaps, I mean? you know. And, uh, um, or perhaps I was just influenced by East of Eden and, and those kind of archetypes, you know. And I cast, cast the two of us in those roles. But that's why in the book I say it was a little unfair to my dad because our lives were much more complex. You don't say it early on, but you say later on that you were so kind of... I would say traumatized by what was going on at home that you were, you were blinking and anxious oh, yeah. and I mean it, it was it was a real level of chaos and, and frightening I guess it, it was um, sometimes well it was enough to make me a nervous wreck and it wasn't just it wasn't just sort of what my father was doing either it was the nature of my relationship with my grandparents which was very intense perhaps incredibly anxiety-provoking. I didn't have any release for it, so I just chewed my knuckles until they were rocks, you know, mm. or, or, or blinked uncontrollably, or, or or lived in a very unusual way, you know. Uh, uh, it was just, that's how it came out at the time. You just, you know, you describe yourself, uh, and I have to close them up, but just, you know, that the circumstances with your grandma and stuff like it, you, you, it, it, and around the age of eight or whatever you were, uh, you know, like the sissy, weirdo, like kind of like, like, um, totally. I mean, the, the journey from that to the guy that, to what was perceived for a while as like a very conventionally masculine rock star. And I mean, it's, what do you make of, of that journey and what, what it was about? And, um. It was an obvious reaction, I think, to my childhood and, and uh, my dad always told me a story. My dad, to me, was a very conventionally masculine man, you know, and I saw him, I saw him like that. You know, he worked physically, uh, uh, he was big and beefy kind of guy, uh, and so... Like I said, you know, those we can't get close to, we emulate. And I think, as I write in the book, perhaps I was attempting to present him with an acceptable figure, right. an acceptable image of myself, along with finding what I felt was an acceptable image of myself for me. Uh, I look back on it and it appears one-dimensional, you know, but uh, uh, I believe that that's how I got there. You know, uh, my father once told me a story and it was, like I say, we were really kind of raised by the same mother. Right. Because uh, uh, I was really raised by my grandparents in the early years of my life. So uh, my father once told me a story. He said he was 
fighting someone. He was a young, young kid. And his mother, my grandmother, obviously came out into the yard or wherever they were and, and pulled him off the kid and made him stop. And he said, and I was winning, and I was winning. <laughs> and I mean, he told me this when he was in his 70s. Right. And this, so this is, was something that stayed with him his whole life. And so I think that part of our problem was uh, he himself had that dichotomy where he, I believe he was similar to me when he was young, you know, uh, perhaps a certain softness because he was soft inside when he really got to know him. He was very tender. He could be a very tender man. And in the 50s and 40s and 50s, of course, you couldn't survive like that. So he went. He was in the army, and he was all the places where you gotta, you gotta bring it up, you know. Uh, and uh, but that was the only part that I caught, you know. Uh, so uh, I think he was saying that that had been taken from him when he was young. Uh, he hadn't been provided with the confidence to be himself. You know, uh, to be uh, fully masculine, and I don't mean that in a in a one-dimensional or conventional sense, but just a young man. You know, uh, so I had to sort my way through all the stuff myself, and of course, what did I use to do it? I used my music, and uh, I did the best I could. What do you think you tried to teach your sons about what what it means to be a man? Well. I think it's what they observe, you know, how you are. It's mostly what we observe at the end of the day, you know. Um, how are you around the family? What do they see? Um, and then occasionally they need some specific direction, perhaps, if they get locked into I, I try to emphasize the softer side of myself, you know, that this was where I came from and that there's no need to feel ashamed or, 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 or to misunderstand this part of your, your, yourself, you know. A lot, just as much as you gotta uh, uh, be comfortable with the other side of yourself, you know. It, 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 so I just try to give them a full picture uh, and, and a human picture of what it, this means to be a, what I feel it meant to be a young man or a man, period. Uh, and, and my boys are, are, are pretty much automatically like that as, as is, you know, and they've, you know, have gone into different lines of work, but my youngest son is a fireman, yeah. and so he's, he really entered the blue collar world that I came from where there, you know, there's some of those expectations when you're doing that kind of work. You know? And my oldest son was, was always uh, he, he just oh, he just comfortably fit fit into a, a somewhat ironic and side-splitting combination of both things, and which never concerned him. He was always like. Oh yeah, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> you know that that one. Oh well, that's ridiculous. You know, like he, he isn't even. He doesn't even give it a thought. You know, uh, those are the kind of struggles that, that I went through. What do you know about women now that you didn't understand as a young man? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, what do I know about women now that I didn't understand when I was a young man? Uh, 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 oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, when mama's happy, everybody's happy. When mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> So one of the things that probably, I guess, got the most attention from this interview is uh, Bruce's comments about Donald Trump, uh, which were his most forceful to date. Uh, And as people might have guessed in advance, he is not a big fan. So here's what he had to say. What what do you make of, of, I mean, in particular, this Trump phenomenon? Well, you know, the republic is under siege by a moron, basically. (laughs) I, I, you know, it's funny, but it's not funny. And uh, it's, it's, the whole thing is just tragic. And, and uh, without overstating it, it's, it's a tragedy for our democracy. You know, you start talking about elections being rigged uh, and, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're pushing people beyond democratic government and uh, it's a very very dangerous thing to do as I said because once you let those genies out of the bottle they don't go back in so easy if they go back in at all the idea is that he's moving to the mainstream which are all very dangerous ideas the white nationalism and the alt-right movement and the outrageous things that that he's done as you know not immediately disavowing David Duke and I mean these are things that are obviously everybody's been saying it are beyond the pale for any previous political candidate it would sink your candidacy immediately yet times have gotten I believe that that there's a price being paid for not addressing the real costs of deindustrialization and globalization that's occurred in the United States over the past 35, 40 years, and how it's deeply, deeply infected people's lives and deeply hurt people to where they they want someone who says they have a solution. And Trump's thing is uh, simple answers to very complex problems, fallacious answers to very complex problems. Uh, and that can be very appealing. I mean, I was struck, you know, he probably saw that the, uh, the Times did that excellent article from Youngstown, and they found the guy he wrote Youngstown about, and he's a Trump supporter. Yeah. And what, yeah. yeah. Does that surprise you? It didn't surprise in some level. No, not sense, really, you know. Not really, not if you see the history of Youngstown and what happened there. So, I mean, what, what do you make of Black Lives Matter now and, the, and, this, and, and, and what's going on? Well, it's all chickens coming home to roost, you know, these are issues that have been ignored or hidden and due to modern technology and the available of cell phone cameras and, uh, uh, you know, constant video feed, you know, uh, these things are coming to the surface, you know, so they need to be addressed directly and, Black Lives Matter is a natural outgrowth and response to uh, injustices that have been occurring for uh, a very long time in the the United States. Why is it so hard for so many white people to grapple with? Why why, why is some people, why is there a backlash? 
Nobody likes being told they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what you experience. Yeah. Or even, you know, you Colin Kaepernick, like, the, I mean, that, that situation. I mean, it, it, it seems all, all of a piece right now. There's this... this... Yeah, well, uh, you know, athletics is a difficult place to make political statements. You yeah. Know? People... It, it, the people that have done that in athletics are the Olympics in the in the '60s and and Muhammad you know it, you're, you're obviously Muhammad Ali, uh, but it's it's you know it's, sports is such a an escapist. People go there for you know, and I think when when politics is injected or when personal expression is injected. Uh, it just rankles people more than it is than, than in other fields for some reason. But uh, I think we're at a place where there isn't any place where you can exclude, where these issues can be excluded. And so I, I admire Kamenik uh, and, and, and the guys that are, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it's. It's, 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 but it's a very difficult field to be outspoken in. And now, I mean, have you, you haven't step, you haven't chosen to do anything this year. I mean, have you lost faith in your, in what, what power you might have to, to affect these things? Mm, I don't know, you know. Uh, you know, I, I, I think you have a limited amount of, as an entertainer, performer, or, Musician, you, you have, there's a limited amount of impact, and uh, I mean, I feel what I've done was, was certainly worth doing, and I did it at the time because I felt the country was in crisis, which it certainly is right now. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we've been approached or not to do anything at the moment. You know, if so, I take it into consideration and and see where it goes. You know, but. Uh, uh, no, I haven't really lost faith in what I consider to be a small amount of impact that, that somebody in rock music might be able to have. You know, it, it's uh, I, I don't think people go to musicians for their political points of view. I think that your political point of view is is, is, is circumstances and then uh, how you were nurtured and brought up and. So, but it's worth giving a shot when it's the only thing you have. Is there a lack of enthusiasm for Hillary on your own part? Or? No, I like Hillary. I think, she'd be a, I think she'd be a very, very good president. So another thing Bruce talked about was sort of this issue of how long can this go on? Uh, he's 67 years old and playing with this absolutely inhuman energy, but uh, as painful as it all is to admit, it, it cannot go on actually forever. So I asked him to address that point as best as he could. There is that contradiction of, of like pushing forward as if it can go on forever and knowing it can't. I mean, how, how does that work for you, this idea of, like, I mean, we, we have, you know, you have Paul McCartney, who's, I think, 76. He's 74, yeah. 74, 74, playing, playing keep, you're keeping track. Um, uh, uh, you know, but he's, he's playing three, he's playing three-hour shows. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so, I mean, is it a tape? Do you, have you thought about how 
like how it would work if you if you if going forward is it just do you just keep forward until until you know you, yeah, <laughs> until there's a high state injury my, and then you pull back or what? Like, my age, life is day to day. Yeah, I mean, I know, you know, I got friends who, you know, depending upon your health, you know, you can be at a very different point in your life at the age that I'm at. You oh, know? Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's really a day to day experience and how you're feeling and and the shape you're in and how you feel uh, emotionally and spiritually inside and what you're up for and the kind of effort you and commitment you still want to bring to what you're doing. Uh, you know, I, I'm still firing on all eight, so uh, I'm, you know, completely committed like I was when I was 16 or 21 years old. You know, I don't feel any, any, as far as motivation to work and, and the way I like to work, I'm you know, I can still you know, I can still do it with no problem. And so uh, uh, but it's it's you know, uh, life as you get older is, is more like what a great day today is and, and let me see, what am I gonna do? And what am I gonna do the next six months or the next year and uh, uh, but I think, you know, it's it's there's definitely, uh, I think there, there, there's no real answer to that question because it's just, it's just what you're, where, where you're at right now. You said. Uh, I mean, you realize that there's a finiteness to it, so that changes your nightly experience. You go, okay, you know, and you, you can you can look out ahead and go, okay, well, I'm 67. Uh, Ten years, I'm 77. That's about. I don't know, maybe that's four tours away or five tours, you know. I mean, you can do that, but, um, and go, wow, there's, you know, I, but, you know, it, 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 I mean, you, you can speculate, but that's all. You, you said uh, on stage, and I think it's, the, you know, the older you get, the more it means. Mm -hmm. And is it because of that finiteness? Is that what that is? It's because of the finiteness. The intensity that the audience brings to the show now, uh, I think they experience the finiteness also, you know, so I, I actually think you get appreciated a little bit more. So you appreciate it more and, and the audience yeah, also appreciates it more. I think so, I think so. I think the whole experience gets heightened because of those, we just played those three shows at MetLife that were... Yeah, I was at the last one, yeah. They had to be yeah. some of the best shows we've ever done in New Jersey. and. The audience was just right there with us. Towards the end of the interview, I got to ask uh, Springsteen basically what was the big deal about rock and roll? Why did it have the impact it had on him, on us, on the world? Uh, here's what he had to say. It was an explosion of the id, you know, <laughs> that had been repressed, first of all, previously to a great degree. So when, when it when you had Little Richard and Chuck Berry and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis, there was this thing that had been that had been contained, suddenly exploding onto the airwaves, into the world, giving you permission to live with that part of your spirit and your body that had been in many ways denied previously. 
that came along at a time when people were quest questioning religion. So there was a, a, a secular spiritual side to it based in uh, bliss and joy and uh, a personal transcendence of circumstances. Um, it was caught up in the dead center of the American dream, the dream of success, the dream of, of uh, identity and uh, uh, fulfillment. Uh, so it, it, it was just a powerful, explosive force that came along at a time when uh, history almost demanded it. And in your life too. The, Certainly. The, when you and, and you were in the right, as you said, the right, exactly the right time to get the full nuclear, but like standing dead center at the mo at the nuclear blast sort of. Yeah, well, I was born at the right time. And that's it for this episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. Brian, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.